please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is uh, Pütte Helena Dahl. And you are primarily a, you define yourself as jewelry and sculpture maker, is that correct? Yes, I work mainly with jewelry and some sculpture and objects, so I think that would be the correct definition. I often want to know mostly, but like, how do people get creative? So were your parents creative? Did you have some great schooling, some life experience? Like what got you into the creative industries in the first place? First, I would like to say that I think all people are creative, you know, when we are born and how it starts. And then it's just differences of how much you develop the creative skills and how you use it. Since people are also creative in other professions. Or how much people sort of discourage creativity, how the, the, the general world sort of take beats it out of us. Yes, school is very good at that, I think, you know, because the subjects are not prioritized and the math and language history is much or considered so much more important. So you already there get the message that this is not that important. I was the youngest of four siblings. And my father was an architect and my mother a bioengineer. So we have the <laughs> contrast. Wait, just to be clear, you said bioengineer. Yeah, that, well, maybe that's not an English word because that's what it's called in, in Norwegian. No, it is an English word. It mm -hmm. is. I'm just clarifying. Just, it's not, I don't often hear people say bioengineer. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what, give me an explanation of what your mother did then. She worked in a hospital in the lab, analyzing blood. And she was a working mother, part-time, some of their childhood, but mostly full-time. So my family was creative, very social. We always had lots of people around. Also part, sometimes people staying there, living there, which was fun. And a very impulsive family, I would say. We also traveled a lot around Europe. Uh, my mom loved sun and we had a boat that we would always go on vacation in the summer. But if the forecast was just rain, <laughs> she would get desperate and we would pack the car instead and go south in Europe, which was great trips. My father was very creative and praised, you know, thinking that that was the best thing to be or, but at the same time, my two sisters were very good at drawing and making things and they were not so so strong at school. So we always thought they would be the artist or choose a creative profession. Me and my brother were very good at school. So I guess they always thought we would take higher education at the university and do science or something else. It took me a long time to decide to become an artist. I was back and forth. I did science in high school, but had my electives in arts. And then I traveled for some years after high school. And at some point I thought to make jewelry, design jewelry, not, not as an artist, but to design jewelry, have a factory somewhere in Asia, live half of the year, somewhere warm, and then Norway half of the year. I had an idea that that would be, you know, a perfect life. But it was sort of a loose idea. I didn't do much about it. Then I lived in London for three years and in a squat with the students that studied film, ceramics. 
So it was a very creative environment. And of course, I envied what they were studying. It looked so much fun to go to an art college. After three years in London, I went back to Norway to take education, also because I had been underpaid, treated like dirt in all my jobs in London, you know, uneducated, foreigner. I would always be told, well, we can replace you any day. And this was the early 90s, and employment was high. So people came, I worked in a clothes store, for example, people came there every day asking for a job. So my bosses were like, if you don't like it, you can just leave. We can replace you anytime. I think that was actually a good experience though, because I always knew I wanted to take education, but I wasn't really rushing it, not, not knowing what I wanted to do anyway. But two years of low pay, no expertise, really made me want to take an education. I just realized I, I cannot live like that the rest of my life and be unskilled. Then of course, choosing artists wasn't really a smart thing <laughs> as I'm making money, I'm still low paid, but at least I know something and it's a fun job and you know I don't have a boss when I work with my art. So that's a benefit. Well, I was gonna say, so now do you do jewelry like custom jewelry do you sell it in a store do you do a commissions or do you make like where you only make what you make and people can buy it and it's sort of a jewelry slash sculptural piece yeah the latter because i make unicas so each piece there's only one and i make them for exhibitions in galleries and yes they are for sale but you know i never sell anything Museums have bought my pieces, but otherwise very seldom I sell to private people, unfortunately. So, you know, because then it comes back, put in a box, stored away. I've tried to make for stores, done it a few times. There's so little money in selling them because then they have to be cheap enough. I have to make them fast enough and sort of make them in a series for, to make it economical. I just don't like that way of working. Oh, I totally agree with that. <laughs> so I have to make my money from, you know, not from my art, but from the education of art. As a creator, as a consultant, I work in a gallery part-time. And now I have a work grant from, or a scholarship from, national scholarship for five years. So now Norway's paying me five years to work with my jewelry. I'm sorry, wait, what is that? The, the, the government is paying you to just make your art? Mm-hmm. I, I really want to know more about this. <laughs> yes, it's fantastic. It, it, I got it last year, so I have four more years to go. And then it can be extended if, if I'm extremely lucky. Because it's so hard to make a living of art or from your art, nor have these work scholarships where you paid sort of a half salary is considered a 50% job, not high wages, but, but decent enough. And you have to apply for this. And it's, of course, a high competition of getting it. From all the kind of grants you can apply for each year, it's about 10% of the applicants that will get a grant. And that could be, that's work grants, but it's also production grants, or it can be all kinds of grants, small and large. That's still a pretty good percentage, though. I know a lot of grants mm. that end up, you know, like a thousand people will apply and only they'll give it to like three to five people. So that's like 2%. So 10% yes. is a pretty good amount of 
actual receiving of grants. Hmm. And it does enable, for me, I, I had a, I worked 70% in the gallery and I worked in this consented art center for, for years. But when I got the work grant, I could go down to 50% and I have now three days a week in the studio and two days at the gallery. It's an enormous difference. So it is, it is luxury. I'm extremely fortunate. <laughs> well, for four more years. Yes. Just that, that it is over a longer stretch of time. You can also get, you know, just for one year, but the five years really enables me to, to dig deep in to the art. And what I can see is that I experiment much more now. You know, I try out things that I'm not sure is gonna work out. I have time to fail. Well, before the deadlines were so often and, and the time I had was so little that I I couldn't take as many chances or, or as much risk because I would have to have a good piece in the end. And I also changed what kind of materials I work with in the last year. So I really can see the difference of having time to work, to really go into it. I've often said that that artists are the three things we desire the most, which the first one everybody desires is money, but money, time, and space. So having a, a creative space that's your own is a very important thing. Money, obviously, because we have to buy our resources and our materials, but also that time. The time away is so important and the, the, the devoted time to production or even just to reflection or whatever is most important because that's the one that most of us in our daily lives can't afford, quite honestly, because we have the stresses of having to make a living, having to find our next exhibition, having to, you know, whatever, deal with family obligations, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, time and time that is not just short bits every now and then, but, but you know, that you can start, like when I start working Monday morning, I know I have three full days and I can work as long as I want to. My son is moved out, so, so I don't have obligations of young children or anything like I did before. So you can keep the train of thoughts, not to be interrupted, super important. So that was the luxury of uh, my situation right now. Of course, it hasn't always been like that, but right now it's very good. You basically have a long-term at-home residency. Yes. And I have a lovely studio at home, two studios actually, one large one for, for bigger pieces and a small one that is perfect for the jewelry, you know, it's, it's the right size for the jewelry. And, uh, and also in the winter when it's very cold, is cheaper to heat up the small space rather than the large one. Sure. Now, I, I studied jewelry in college, and I know lots of jewelers. I love them. They do all my custom jewelry. It's fabulous. But I feel like there's probably a bit of a, a difficulty for you with the, doing something that you're calling jewelry, but submitting it for we'll call it like fine art purposes. So exhibition purposes are, do people give you any difficulty um, with the sort of, even just the verbiage of calling it jewelry, but wanting to put it into an art gallery? No, not really. The challenge is that there's not so many galleries that are showing 
conceptual jewelry. So, so there's less places than if I was a painter. So in that sense, yes, it's a challenge, but there are galleries around the world that shows and in Norway and Scandinavia, we show at art centers, different kinds of non-commercial galleries. With the audience, often we have to explain more. You know, people come in and they see jewelry and they think, first they think, oh, would this, would this suit me? Would I look pretty in it? And then they're like, but it's large or it's weird or, you know, and then try to explain to them that this is, is wearable, the jewelry I make, often not so heavy, but it can be large. Uh, in uh, compared to other kinds of jewelry. And there is, of course, different kinds of materials because I use ready-mades and things I find and I buy things from free markets, secondhand stores. And then I combined it with other materials like plastic, aluminum, brass. Now I work a lot with wood. But people don't think of jewelry normally as art maybe or not as pieces with a meaning. With, you know, that I work, I make the jewelry and they have a concept and they comment on something. M most people ha haven't thought of jewelry in that way. So we often have to explain a little bit, you know, introduce to the audience that here, open your mind, think of it as sculpture or uh, how would you approach a painting? And if you go in with that frame set, it's easy to understand Oh, I get it. Yeah. My mother collects sort of custom jewelry pieces like this. We have a few jewelers or not jewelers, uh, craftspeople really that, that produce jewelry that uh, she's been collecting for decades. So like, I'm all about the idea, but your stuff is, yeah, it's not very, and I mean this in the nicest way, it's not very wearable really. Like it, it really feels like it's, it's almost like you, and this is sort of leading to another question, but it's almost like it's a sculpture that you're designing in miniature. And then, but then when I look at your large scale works, they're not, I, I sort of imagined when I saw that you did large scale work, I'm like, oh, she took her like maquettes, which are little jewelry and made them really big, but that's not what you do. You do something completely different when it goes to large scale. Yes and no, because I use some of the same materials. And uh, when I work larger, I make them in modules. So, so each piece is not necessarily so large, but it's put together as a larger piece. That had to do with before I had another studio and it wasn't room to work so large. So I had to make it in, in sections. And of course, also most of my tools are made for a certain size. So it's practical <laughs> as well as a, as yeah, a way of working. But but I think that when I worked larger, a lot of the commission work has been more colorful, more playful, even more so than, than a lot of the jewelry. And that is of course, because commission work is for a, a specific audience. It's the school kids or it's the children in the daycare or, you get the commission and it's it, it's a frame around it that you of course have to deal with in a different way than in a gallery i like both it's, it's just different ways of thinking when you start the project well i mean within that are you always do you do like one piece like you start a piece from the beginning and you and you finish it to completion or are you 
working on multiple pieces at the same time and sort of coming back and forth between multiple works? I have to have many pieces to work on at the same time because uh, I'm fairly impatient as a person. And some of the work, you know, when you work on the surface, I love surface and how the material feels is very important to me, but that can take forever to sand it down or to file it. And I get so bored of it. So then I have to switch and work on something else to then go back again, you know, so I don't drive myself mad as, as well as this, since I don't sketch the drawing, uh, like I don't draw how I'm going to work. I, I find items that I that triggers an idea or I look for an item that I think will fit to the concept. And then I sort of sit with lots of different things around me and compose the piece by putting one thing in, taking another out, back and forth and back and forth. And often that process can take a long time before I find the solution to how I want it to look. And in that process, I also have to go in and out because if I then get stuck, I can work on something else. And in the meantime, as I think many people will recognize, then it's, your brain is still working. So in the back there, without you being conscious, you're solving the problem of the other piece. All the time. Yeah, so I can sit in sand while my brain is working on the other piece. And then finally I find the solution, can go back, finish it. Yeah, so I like having many pieces and, you know, to, to switch around. And also because while working on something, I think that my ideas comes best if I'm physical, you know, so either working on something or I go for a walk. I can't just sit down and decide now I'm going to think. That doesn't work. I know. I, I find that often, well, not oftentimes, almost every time, the moment I don't have a piece of paper with me to like write a note or anything is the moment I come up with that great idea of like, oh, wait, I need to do that to the piece. And I don't have a piece of paper and a pencil with me to like jot down to remember it. So then I have to work really hard to try to remember that I want to do this thing until I get to a piece of paper and a pencil. <laughs> I often use a napkin. I Before I always had a notebook in my bag, always. But now I often write it on the phone instead because I also have this like, oh, there's the title or now I know how to do it. And, or that idea was smart. And I will quickly forget. I know. And I did the same thing. And I used to make notes on my phone and then I never look at my phone for my notes. So I forget about the note being there. And then of course I forget about the thing. So yeah, <laughs> it's, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's a thing that I'm just getting old. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, I need to get back to a notebook in my pocket, though. That's but the but then you also have to have a writing utensil. A notebook with no writing utensil is not very useful, sadly. So. Mm. All right, now you but you do a lot of different things. So you've even brought up so you work in a gallery. You do a, you're a curator. You make jewelry. You make large scale sculptures, and you're also part of a I'm not sure what a collective association called Archivet. Is that correct? Archiva. It's a group of jewelry artists. We started this group in 2014. We were five first, now we're four. And it was really to work together as a group to encourage each other, to manage to, to do maybe larger projects because we are more people. And how it works is that we decide on a theme. So the last project was secrets. 
then everyone has to make jewelry based on secrets. And before that, it was beauty box, it's been uh, worthless. So we worked on one theme for a while and then we decided on another theme. And then we have exhibitions together showing jewelry with the same theme. And we thought that the exhibitions hopefully are more interesting because you get four different perspectives, but all about the same thing, but we work very differently. It's all jewelry, so so we have that in common, but it's, we work very differently and and have different approaches to, to the themes. So we feel that we can explore it in a much wider sense than we could have done by ourselves. The other benefit of, of collaborating like that is, first of all, I would never have been able at the time it started to participate in so many exhibitions if we hadn't been a group, because at that time I was working at the gallery, I had a lot of freelance jobs, you know, to make means end. But being a group, we, you know, one person deals with the gallery, another one photographs the work, one makes a catalog, one sends the applications to get money to the productions. And we're good at slightly different things. So, so we divide it and it means that you don't have to do everything by yourself, which we usually do as an artist, you know, all the administration work, which also takes forever <laughs> and eats up your time to make anything. So I love it. I love being in this group. And of course, we still work as individual artists as well. So there's no limit. We, we do projects in the group and then one can do whatever one wants on the outside. And we've been Athens Jewelry Week twice, an exhibit run in Norway. We should have been in Finland in February. Unfortunately, it was only our art that got to go. <laughs> we installed the show through Zoom. That was a fun experience with the gallery. <laughs> we, was it really fun? No, it was fun in the sense I never tried it before. And it was a, a solution since it wasn't possible to go. But of course, we usually work a lot with the exhibition design to to create a room and how the jewelry fits into the or the design fits into the theme. Here we had to send the work with FedEx. We had to make it easy so the gallery could you know understand what to do. So basically, when we then installed it, we had to say you know a little higher, a little this, turn it. Yeah, it's much more fun to go yourself, and and then being a group. It's so much more fun to have the exhibition because we are there for people working together and have you know go out and eat or have fun we we rent apartments for through airbnb well you know when i work only by myself you go to a place you don't know anyone and you work there for maybe a week to put up the show you stand there on the opening still not knowing anyone it can be lonely and stressful being more people, it's far less stressful and much more fun. I totally understand. I mean, I love having an exhibition. It's always, it, it feels good to be sort of uh, chosen and then have an exhibition kind of thing. But oftentimes I feel kind of empty at the end of an exhibition because I, I feel like I don't get what I'm hoping for. I don't, maybe I have weird expectations, but like 
I always hope that an exhibition will connect with people in some way so that they like we can then connect. But I end up finding that they're mostly just social gatherings and we talk about rather pedantic things that have nothing to do with the art. We we talk about the next art show we're going to after this one closes or we where we're going to go to dinner afterwards or whatever. Like it's not as fulfilling uh, as I sort of always envisioned an art opening being for me. Yeah, I think art openings can be hard. I, I don't particularly like all the attention. At the same time, as you say, you get you get lots of attention, but it's hard to actually talk about the work or people just say, nice exhibition, okay? <laughs> you work two years and you know you want feedback. I always envied actors. You know, being on the stage and you can hear from the audience if they really like it or if they hate the play. And you get the chance to do it night after night and be a little bit better or change it a bit. While we have, you work for some years, you put up the exhibition and that's it. And and at the opening, people are nice and polite, so it's, <laughs> but you don't know if they really liked it. And then you leave and uh, really you have no idea how people reacted to the work, except the gallery will tell you a little bit. But I, I like if I can have groups and talk in the, you know, to show my work and, and actually talk to the, talk to the audience. It's difficult. I mean, it, our entire careers are built on the idea or not the idea, but the reality of we go off into our own creative worlds, make something and then sort of drop it into the real world and people either like it or they don't. And if, if the hard part is oftentimes if they like it, you don't know why. So like, was it just the right timing, the right place, the right color palette? Like, what is it that like it worked at that moment at that place or it didn't work and nobody could tell you what you did wrong, but you just know it didn't work. And like, and so we don't, our entire careers are built on sort of not getting any active feedback saying, okay, you're like 75% of the way there. Let's try and get this last 25% and the next show will be better. Nobody gives you that. And that's really hard. Yes, but I think we can do something about that ourselves. I try to use colleagues for input before the exhibition and after. And if I have a solo show myself, then I will invite some other artists that I trust to help me you know, to say, uh, that piece, no, take it out. This is too much. This is good. Or do it this way. Because I need that other, I need someone else's eye, especially with a solo show where you, or at least I do, always work up to the very last minute. So things are so fresh. I can't see really properly what is good and what is bad and what should I take up way or is it too much because I want everything that is finished into the show and not always is that a good thing as I know from the other side when I work in the gallery we often advise the artist to give the work more air and, and space and edit some of it out that is often helps the exhibition if it's not overloaded unless that is the main point though of course but 
Oh, I agree. I, I've often said that it takes me like three to five years of distance and time from work to even be able to reflect back and be able to eloquently write a good artist statement that even describes what I made. Because generally, like when you make a body of work, I feel like I'm still too close to the situation of whatever I made the, the, the work about to even know within myself what it's about, much less be able to write eloquently and explain it within three to five years, maybe 10 years. <laughs> That's a long protective. I don't look so much back, so I wouldn't know. If I'm, when I'm done with it, I'm done with it. So, but I, right when you open a show, it is fresh and it's not digested that well. So I agree that it's hard to be precise about what exactly is it that you try to do here. I would have the intention of, but maybe it changed a little bit during the process and, and it can be hard to see it. You mentioned you're curating. I'm always fascinated by people who sort of do both artistic work themselves and curating. Is that an easy sort of uh, switch that you can flip off? Like, okay, today I'm a curator, today I'm an artist, or does it sort of bleed over both ways? No, I find that very easy to, to switch between. As a curator, I think of a theme, sort of the same way as I would if I make my own art, that I, I have to have a, a concept. What is it that I want to say? And when I curate, then, then of course I do lots of research. I don't look at artists, I look at the art. So I'm not so interested in the artist. If I find a piece that fits in, and so especially with jewelry, which is easy to transport all over the world, I can look around the whole world uh, with no limit because it, it, it's affordable to, to ship it to Norway if the exhibition is in Norway. And there, many of the artists is like, you know, and I'm like, that piece, I would like, is that available? So I'm not interested if, if that piece is not available, unless they have something very similar. But, and of course, I do check the artist as well, but I'm not so interested in the name or if the person is famous. I don't care. I think it's the, the artwork itself that is interesting. Okay, so when, when you're approaching, because I'm thinking... I'm a photographer, so I come from the background of like hanging things on the walls and that kind of stuff. How, so how do you, when you're, well, A, making your own work, but B, also then as a curator, when you're designing or thinking of how something's going to be presented, do you use like mannequins or do you do it like so it, so it looks like jewelry or do you display it in other ways to make it sort of expand beyond that? Yeah, I don't think I ever used mannequins. Oh yeah, actually I did once, but that's a long time ago. So no, I think uh, it's often hung on the wall. It can be, but it's also, we have, I've shown them in on furniture, in drawers. It can be built shelves, all kinds of ways really. And, and again, you have, uh, I have to think of first, what's the theme? Like I had a solo exhibition many years ago in Oslo, and it was about definitions, how, how we define people in different groups and my criticism of it. So then I made a huge table, which was divided in small areas, sort of how you, you could be in a library, sit by yourself or, or in a, a study, one lamp for each 
small space and one jewelry in each space. So then that design was to emphasize what I was talking about. And I prefer that kind of exhibition design where it's, you emphasize the whole theme to make it stronger and the experience in the room. I also like that you have to move around and that you don't see everything at the same time, you know, so you can't just look quickly in the room and think, ah, I saw the exhibition. You have to actually get around and look properly. It's sort of forcing people <laughs> into the art. I, I'm always very clear when I invite artists about what, what the theme is. So they have to accept that this is, this is the context that your work will be read and discuss how to show it. How controlling do you get on that? Because in my mind, which I do this, even when I have my exhibitions, like I will want the, the wall to be painted in a matte finish. Let's say if the images are very strong and glossy, you know, so like down to paint colors and paint surfaces and textures, like these things are very important to me because I feel like they're part of the experience. Of course, not every gallery will do that because of basically cost and time, but do you think about all those things? I imagine that you do. When there's budget, yes. <laughs> it depends on on the exhibition. Sometimes when I curate it, there is a fantastic theme and, and a, a team of workers and I can choose the color of the walls. I can get things built. I had uh, extra walls built to divide the rooms different ways. That's fantastic. But very often it's low budget. I have to do the work myself and then there's a limit of what I can manage. And, and also I made quite a few exhibitions that had been touring. So you have to think of how this is going to be packed, transported, and that I will not be present at each place to open it and put it up together. So you have to think smart of, so each gallery will actually manage to display it right. And some of the challenges there is also that of course this each gallery has different space and different size and you have to make it fit for all of them. But I actually like all kinds of, sort of practical challenges like that, that you have to figure it out. And if you come up with something really, really smart, then it's fun. And they also have different skill levels in, in installation abilities as well too. Yes. Yeah. I know I used to work in galleries, so. But it sounds like you do a lot of writing of proposals. Like I've, I've been hearing like that you, you know, you're doing curating works or you're proposing stuff. You're doing traveling exhibitions that includes proposal works. You're right. You're getting your government funding kind of thing. Like I know that involves a lot of paperwork. What kind of, you seem to be doing it well. So like how, how are you doing it? Like what's the approach you have to make it successful i guess yeah, yeah i wish i had a you know a clear answer to that i think i'm pretty good at applications but i uh, uh, just been slaughtered on my artist statement so i went to a writing workshop and bad reviews i was told to really work on it do tell i want to hear <laughs> so uh, and it was also people that in we were just 10 people in this workshop some of them know my art very well and they said my artist statement did not do justice to my work so i'm working on it but i think with the applications i am very short and precise 
and of course, I see a lot of applications working in the gallery, exhibition applications and the local grant applications. And it's really important to get to the point fast first and cut the crap. I'm not necessarily always so good at it myself, but to try to get some write about your art thinking this sounds good or this is, I wish it was like that if it's not. If you just work with shape then say it's shape, you know, don't try to make it conceptual if it's not, for example, which I often see that people do. It's not necessary if it is shape or if it's texture or if it's, you know, then, then that's what it is. And give the curator or whoever you write it to the sense of what I'm looking at and what you're writing is connected. Wait, so that's it. So I could just like, I do often figurative work. So I could just say it's about the figure and that we're good. Like, I don't need to add anything else to that. I would love that. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I would love that if I could get away with that too. <laughs> also because the sooner you try to put another framework around your work, it starts to look like everyone else's application very fast. So, okay, wait, so is that a thing? Cause I remember when I was a kid, I remember being in like high school and they were, they, they used to say like, when you make your resume for a job, you always want to make it so that basically if it's thrown out on a table with a bunch of other resumes that somehow it sort of stands out. So like I used to do like colored papers and interesting fonts and whatever to make it literally like stand out in a, in a stack of papers. But you're saying that like basically we should not try to necessarily like fit the mold, but stand out a little bit in some way. Yeah, I would recommend that and be short. Always remember that the person that's going to read it, often there's more than one, is going to read a lot of applications. It takes forever. So, you know, don't write more than you absolutely have to. And yes, stand out, but not with the fancy designs or different paper. <laughs> well, you can't anymore because it's all done online anyways. Yeah. But then, of course, the main, absolute main thing is your work. It doesn't help if you write well, if your work is crap. So, so it comes always down to that. Well, everybody says that, but it's so hard because something that's quote unquote like crap today it might be ahead of its time or it might be past its prime i don't know but like maybe 10 years from now it will no longer be seen as crap so like there's the issue of like what in one day is crap at another day could be suddenly like the best example of an entire artistic movement simply because of context or relationships or something that sort of changed its its uh, approach or the way people look at it. So it's really hard to like be sort of basically have the right work at the right time into the right place in front of the right people. Like that's the the combination that's impossible to foresee. I totally agree. You can't foresee it and but one thing is to always remember that there are different people that looks at your application or your work. And if they say no, try somewhere else because they will have a different view. So, so to never give up and, and just, okay, maybe that venue wasn't the right one for me at this time, but maybe next year it will be different people working there or another place. So because of, 
I think, or at least I gotten lots of rejections during <laughs> years of as we an artist. But yeah. you, you know, I, I, I just you try not to think so much about all the no's and just be super happy about uh, every now and then when they come see you. Yes, we would like to show your work. It's hard though. That, I mean, that's the, one of the most. I mean. And I think of people that have like what I would call like, you know, sort of normal jobs and like they just they have a job and they don't have to put up with this kind of stuff. Like we've chosen probably one of the most emotionally draining careers we could possibly ever create choose for ourselves. I mean, and when I say we, I mean, all creative people. So artists, writers, musicians, visual, you know, actors, whatever, like anybody who sort of does a creative thing, we get so much rejection on so many levels throughout our careers that if we sort of just said, no, I'm, I just want to work in an office. Like they don't get that kind of rejection constantly the way we do. Like, and yet we choose this and we enjoy it. Are we just like gluttons for punishment or something? <laughs> Speaking for myself, I'm my skin gotten a bit thicker <laughs> over the years, so so it's not as emotional. And yes, it's hard competition. Everything we do in the art worlds are, uh, you know, we compete with each other, and we are many many good artists trying to to show in the same gallery or get the same funding, all these things, but. We also have, I like, I have the best profession. I have the freedom. I'm my own boss. I can, all these things that pops into my head, I can actually make them and it's my job. Well, but we're reliant on somebody approving or agreeing that we're making quality whatever. Because if you were sitting at home or sitting in your studio making your work and you never got an exhibition, you never got a grant, you never got accepted into anything, there will be a point where it's just like, I got to stop this or I've got to change something dramatically. But like there, you have to get some amount of outside acceptance in order to even have that continued drive like it's really hard to be self-motivated in this industry if you're getting no approval i think i would have given up very fast because i'm not making this uh, i have fun making the art but i'm not making it for myself i don't particularly want even more art stored in in the garage so you know so if it never comes out Yes, I would have given up. So we do need someone to 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 prove, of course. Yeah, it's sad but true. Like I wish we didn't need approval. Mm. All right. Well, speaking of approval, what about social media? Do you use it? Do you enjoy it? How? What's your experiences with that? I know that it's important to be on Instagram. It's important to post. I don't. I am on Instagram. I post from my vacations. So there's hardly ever anything with art there. Uh, on Facebook, I use Facebook as promotion tool. But only if I have an exhibition or something that I find interesting. So I'm, and again, I know that this is the way to, to reach out. But to me, just time consuming and I find it so boring. 
and it, it, it takes time away from the studio because you have to take good photos. You have to think about it. So no, I'm horrible at it. I do look at other people's work, but not so good doing it myself. Oh, fair enough. I, I am not a fan of it. I, I feel like in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been this slow progress of galleries and other sort of institutions and stuff sort of passing the buck back to the artist to make us responsible to be, do our own publicity, our own self-promotion, our all this kind of stuff, when for decades it was the galleries and other institutions that sort of did this on our behalf as our managers, as our coordinators or whatever. But even like, I even know galleries that say, Oh, okay. And be sure to post on your social media. Like, like I have to do work for them to sell my work. It's like, but the point is you're supposed to sell my work. <laughs> so like, I'm a little tired of that. Yeah. And it is time consuming. So one has to somehow balance how much office work, one should do compared to the time making it because it is always you know lots of emails and lots of planning economy so yeah i get frustrated if it's if the office part takes too much time i want to use my hands and not just sit on the computer no, something I noticed also, so like you were talking about how you don't sell your work very much and basically like you're not living off of selling of your, your artwork, but yet you don't have prices or any way to purchase directly on your website. Like, it, was that a conscious choice that you said, I don't want to put prices out into the world kind of on my website, or you don't want to be actively tr even trying to sell through your own website? Or did you, or were you just like, nah, I don't, I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> That's a good question. To be honest, I, I haven't even considered it. I don't know any jewelry artists in Norway that has prices on their website, except for the people that works very commercial and, and sells through stores. But just because everybody else does it that way doesn't make it right. <laughs> of course not. So it's, it's a very good question. I would have to consider that. Definitely. Well, the reason why I ask is, I guess, because like I'm sort of wondering, I'm looking at some of these pieces, I'm like, how much is that? So I guess, sort of, what's a price range for what are your pieces selling for? Uh, they are, what would that be? 10,000 kroners, 10 to 15,000 kroners, which is 10,000 euro, I would think. Okay. Approximately. Mm -hmm. So much cheaper. Yeah, that's not cheap for sure. For like, because like, if I was thinking about buying a piece of jewelry, like, that's a bit much for a piece of jewelry. Not for a piece of art, but for a piece of jewelry. Yeah, but that's the whole difference. It is art. Well, but, and that's that's what, sort of what I was going back to with that previous question about like the difference between like sort of sculptures and, and exhibition pieces versus jewelry. Like it's almost to the point of like, why do you even keep the name, the word jewelry? Because people misunderstand it. Whereas if you just said, I'm a sculptor, or I'm a miniature sculptor, <laughs> you know, like I only make small sculptures. People would sort of, that that seems more recognizably easy for people to go, oh, okay, you're a small sculptor. Got it. Whereas there's a lot of misunderstanding. When I read jewelry, I'm like, oh, I could, I could wear that, but not at a thousand euros. I'm not going to wear that around just in case the chain breaks or whatever. <laughs> but if you buy a diamond ring, it would also cost 
a lot. easily. Oh my God. My, I have a family story for that. My, my great grandmother had uh, diamond earrings with like 112 di small diamonds over two earrings, but she refused to get her ears pierced. And so one day they were, so they were clip-ons. And so she lost one. So she took the existing one and then split it into two, and then she had two, and then still refused to do pierce her ears, lost one, kept doing this until now there's only like eight of them left. So I had this like long family history of being totally afraid of jewelry breaking and being lost. So yeah. In some contexts, yes, small sculpture would probably describe it better. But I use jewelry because, first of all, it is a large international community of jewelry artists that works like me, you know, that work conceptually with jewelry. So in that context, it's it's right to, to call it jewelry. And also I do make, the majority of the pieces are adjusted to the body. So it, it, they are wearable, they're functional as jewelry. Some pieces that I made that it was about time is a project I'm still working on. I don't know if you saw them on the website, but they're fairly large circular pieces that are abstracted clocks or watches, not clocks, with a pendulum underneath. I saw them, yeah. Those would be more, I think they're, they're even better as wall pieces rather than, but again, they are functional, you can wear them, but they're maybe even better just hanging on the wall. I thought about why, why does it, why do I even bother making them jewelry? They could have been just objects, but I really like the idea that people can wear it and that because it's statements. So what does it say if you wear it? It has a different kind of power being on somebody than just being placed on a pedestal or, or hanging on the wall because it says something about you when you're wearing it. I like that. It gives the art a, a completely different dimension than being just separate from from the human. Just to be clear, you know I was playing devil's advocate with that, right? We, we got to talk about the differences. Okay, good. So wrapping this up, I have two final questions that I ask everybody. First one would be some th three recommendations of some contemporary artists that you're looking at that somehow inspire you. Paolo Goldstein is one. He works with repairs, furniture, lamps. He's Brazilian-Italian. I met him in London some years ago, but I don't know if he still lives there. Or, But he works, he takes things that are broken and then he repairs them with other parts that is also broken. And he makes these fantastic furniture and lamps beautifully crafted, but they're funny and they're weird and and it's is a mix of things put together i really really like his work and i also had him in a show that i curated some years ago another one in the same sort of gate is that david gates also a british artist he works with furniture and especially cabinets also beautifully crafted. I, I love when things are joined together really nicely and things are precise. And But his cabinets are funny and, and weird and uh, 
and you don't think of them as cabinets first, but they're all functional. So you you know you can open the door and put, store things in it, but often they stand on very thin legs and sort of quirky. Both those are like for their craftsmanship and that they have a humor to their work, but both also work functional. These things actually work as uh, what they're meant for. The chair, you can sit in it. Sure, we'll come back to this. We still have one more person to mention, but I have a question that I've been harping on for decades. The, so the differentiation, because you talk about just now craftsmanship and craft and you know joints and all this kind of stuff, which I do woodworking as well. So I love a beautiful craftsmanship of a you know joint and everything like this. But what, what, how would you define the difference between craft, art, fine art, maybe even some other words in the in there? Like, what's the difference between them from your perspective? In Norway, we have a definition that is art, craft, kunsthandwerk. So I'm an art, craft person. Before you would have called it maybe applied art. To me, it all melts together. Fine art, craft, but of course, craftsmanship, you can also talk about a carpenter's craftsmanship. That's also something to admire, but that's different. It's not with the intention of art. It's just pure good craftsmanship. I love when good craftsmanship comes into the artwork and the people, that the artist is thinking of smart ways to make the piece, how to join it, as I said, combine different materials, as well as it has a meaning or concept. I have a definition that I made up. I don't know if I read this somewhere, but it's my belief. Craft, like, so I have the definition, I have craft, art, fine art, in a sort of a hierarchy. Craft is about the craftsmanship so it's, you know, it's about, so like if you make a beautiful chair, that's a craft and it's magnificent. If you have an idea behind it, a concept behind it, it then can be elevated to art. But then fine art is when the concept is the primary reason for something and then everything else falls behind it. That's my theory. That's my working definition of them. But I think most of us work then with fine art, but we have the art and the craft as as the tools to make fine art. Absolutely, yes. No, in order to be part of the sort of the more elevated status, so like a, in order to have a piece of art, you have to have good craftsmanship, and in order to have a piece of fine art, you have to have craftsmanship and art. So craft and art to elevate it. So it has to have everything below it in order to reach that higher level, but. The fine art level, the, the highest, what I what I call in my snobbery, the highest level of it all is where the concept is the thing that drives the work instead of that it's a you know a beautiful chair that has a purpose or has an idea to it. That's fine. That's still art to me. But fine art would be a, a chair that was designed like a dolly sort of melted thing. Like, so it had a concept behind it, even though it still has great craftsmanship and a good idea. So that's my, that's my working definition. I could be totally wrong, but it also goes back to my desire to like have Excel spreadsheet, be able to define differences between things and, and be able to like have a step-by-step -step process of like categorization which I know doesn't exist in reality, but that's my reality. 
I'll let it be your reality then. Fair enough. Third person, you had one more recommendation. Which an artist, Camilla Vexels Riese, she's a, also a close friend of mine. She works with her husband sometimes on installations, James Moore, and their installations, they take, it's been in the basements, up in attics, in galleries, they find spaces that are not used normally to show art. They have sound, smell, all kinds of found objects and made objects, and they create this fantastic atmosphere. You, you enter it and you go into a different world in these creations. It takes them months to build it. The times I've been in their installations, it just sits in me forever after. It's just wonderful, a million things to look at, you know, and, and they're so meticulous. Everything is thought about. All the colors, uh, the paint, the objects, how they're placed together, everything. But I really love this, uh, the art experience of, of uh, entering another world that is a, a total, you know, like everything is, you just emerge in the art in these installations. Fabulous. All right. The last little bit would be some advice for the next generation. So from some experiences that you've had, good, bad, that you could sort of encourage or give some advice to the next generation coming up as to either what to do or what not to do from your own experiences? It's hard to be give advice, I think, because it, it's all individual. and But to, to trust your own voice, to try, you know, try not to be part of a trend, not to try to fit in so much, but trust that, that what you want to say and how you want to do it is good enough and to not give up too soon. And with applications, read the instructions and follow it. <laughs> because I received so many applications where I'm, this is not how I asked you to send it. And again, that's time consuming for the receiver. If you send five files instead of one file, it takes forever. Those things are very simple, but it's just put your name on the application to start with. Otherwise I have a thousand, <laughs> thousand files that is named the same. I'm sorry, wait, you literally have to give, oh, you have to remind people to put their name on their application? <laughs> yes. Because when you send it through email, you think, then of course I see who has sent it. But when I file it, when I save it on my computer, it doesn't have a, yeah, you don't know how much I have to, <laughs> to guide people with names or budget that it should be in balance, all those kind of things. Just, it's very simple. So, so I'm just advising, just take the time to do it properly. Uh, it's, sometimes it's the most simple things that we just overlook, I guess. Yes, because I think often the artist thinks of how it, the file system is smart for on your own computer, but you forget the receiver. The receiver has a different system, and so name is important. Or you know, so it's so all these things that always think of who's receiving this, who's who are you sending this to? 
Oh, no, I'm on your side. I, I even I'm a bit obsessive about it. I will do it my last name first, first name last, because my last name is Dole. So it'll show up a little higher than Matthew, which is a little lower in a alphabetical ranking. But I always start with Dole's Matthew and then and then whatever it is so that all the files, whether they're images or text or whatever, they'll all be together in a in a in a a file folder basically i'm a little obsessive about that stuff so like uh, you don't yeah i got it but i'm sure there are people that don't <laughs> you didn't need that advice but maybe somebody does it well it's amazing like how how much how much the details make a huge difference like if i were to receive an application from somebody and read it and some of those details were not done as directed in the instructions, I'd be like, okay, they may make good work, but they can't seem to follow instructions. So like, maybe I don't want to work with them, you know, and it can be those little details that can ruin a potential like opportunity because you just didn't follow the instructions as written. And again, but like we talked about earlier, that how to stand out, then you suddenly stand out in the negative way. Because it could end up being then that uh, this was a messy application. I don't really want to deal with it. Or this person seems unprofessional. I don't take the chance. For example, I work as a consultant in public art, commissioned art, you know, in public spaces. And often we advertise nationally. Anyone interested in a project, send in previous work. And it's a way of doing research that people send the work to me. And then I can look at the, who's interested. And there, if the um, application or it, you know portfolio that they send, if they haven't followed the instructions or it's messy or whatever, it's harder to choose because I have to trust that this person will complete a large project in public space. And I want to know how much work do I have to do? Do I have to, you know, check everything or can I trust that this artist is professional and will deliver what is agreed upon? Okay. I, because I'm a photographer, I have a very specific question about that because you say you read these applications and look through these applications. So I want to know something these days specifically. So like recent times, are people sending pictures that they take with their cell phones or are they still doing professional documentation or representations of their work and but more specifically does it make a difference most people send in professional photos and yes it makes a difference if the documentation is poor it's very hard to sell this in to the builder or whoever is paying for this public commission for example so yes good documentation is super important no less important now than in has been before. Okay. I was just, ha I just had this weird feeling that a lot of artists are sort of using their cell phones to sort of document, like they, they take pictures that they put on Instagram and they're like, oh, I can use this for my portfolio. And I'm like, really? Is that a thing? I haven't seen much of that. So, um, fabulous. No, no, it's good to know. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I, I, it was my fear that people were doing that, not my fact. Still could happen, but I haven't seen much of it. All right. Any topics that you want to talk about that I didn't bring up or that I didn't give you a chance to flesh out? I think we talked very little bit or not so much about materials, which is really my main thing in, in my art. 
you know, that the materials to, to find the right material and find the right thing and how that can trigger the idea. I, I, I just want to tell you a story before we end this. I went to, to South of Norway last weekend, finally went on a weekend trip, you know, because we've been stuck in the house for a year, more or less. Anyway, we walked just walked in the woods and there was a whole skeleton of a sheep killed by a, probably a lynx. And to me, that's like, I just found a treasure. And then we found a lamb further into the woods. Also, the whole skeleton was there, you know, in pieces. I could just pick up all the bones. I love that. And I don't know what I'm going to make of this, you know, but now they're <laughs> cleaned and lying in the dining room to, to dry. <laughs> Probably a bit scary if you come to visit and you just see this pile of bones. So, yes, I, I and I thought uh, the whole trip, you know, driving five hours down there was worth it. It was worth it anyway because we visit France. But I find things like that and then I start to, you know, ideas comes from, from the material that I find. I'm a huge fan of materiality. Like uh, oftentimes the material in and of itself can inspire ideas. It, it's hard though sometimes because like we've been talking about like concepts and like the, including concepts in it. And it's sometimes, sometimes my work is just because I love what this material is and how it interacts with these other things. And I just love what happens when they sort of start to juxtapose and interact with each other. But then I need some reason for it. <laughs> so like there is, there is the, there is that balance of like, some things are just fun to make because the materials are just beautiful together and they, they create something that they, that alone, they weren't something special, but together they're even more dynamic than ever before. But then sometimes it's like, well, but it's just a pretty thing. Yes. You know, I have boxes all uh, from, from floor to ceiling in my studio with things that I collect. And there I have so many things that I think is just wonderfully beautiful or so fun, but I haven't found the concept of how am I going to use it? What is it going to say? So then they're just in the box because of course it's no point if it's just a cool thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, artists, we just collect things to hopefully be inspired by them at some point. Like this is a whole conversation I've had with many people, which is just storage, <laughs> you know, whether it's old works that you just have to store until there's another exhibition or a sale of that work. But also there's the storage of just all the things that sort of inspire you that you're not actually doing anything with, but that you think that someday they might have some purpose and you don't know what it is yet, but you don't want to get rid of them. And so we end up having this massive amount of stuff that we're not actually doing anything with, but we're not going to get ready to get rid of yet. Oh, it's definitely me. <laughs> I also have a storage in the garage. Uh, so um, I, I now live in a very large house, so it's possible. That's the point of not living in a, in Oslo. It, it, you know, the house prices where I live is about a third of Oslo. So it's possible to exchange a small flat to a house. But yes, boxes and boxes of things that has a potential. It could be something. It could become great pieces. And I'm terrified of getting or throwing anything out. I have done sometimes, and then the idea comes, 
a week later or something happens and I'm like, now I know what I should have used that thing for. I also run into the thing of like, I've got this magnificent thing that I want to do something with and I've been holding on to it for probably six years now. And I'm so scared to do anything with it because if I do the wrong thing with it, it was a one of a kind thing and then I've just wasted it. Yeah, I try not to be so scared about that because I often have just one of a kind and I just have to take the chance. I prefer, of course, to have a backup, but usually I don't. I usually just found that one thing in that flea market so or out in the nature, I don't have a backup. And yes, quite often I do the wrong thing and it doesn't become a good piece or I suddenly saw it in two halves and decided afterwards that I shouldn't have done it and it's too late. So that happens. All too often, sadly, in my life anyways. <laughs> Art is about experimenting, so one has to also embrace the, the failures and the all the tryouts. Absolutely. I mean, I there was a quote, I saw this in some video somewhere, but basically this design firm put this mural in their office that said, fail hard. So like, whether you're, you're succeeding or you're failing, do it with all of your might, basically. And I'm like, I love that. That you're totally in, you know, that you're committed to, it, to what you're trying. And if I'm going to fail, I'm going to push that failure as far as possible. Because a lot of times I find that like, I'll be working on something and I'm like, fuck, I screwed that up. But then I sit it aside for like a month or something and then I'll pull it back out and I'll be like, oh, oh no, wait, I can still make this something interesting and do keep working on it. So oftentimes for me, failure is just sort of a momentary thing. And that sometimes with, again, with a little time and distance, I can suddenly look at it with fresh eyes and be like, oh no, wait, it still can be something interesting. But the sad thing is, is a lot of them feel like failures in the moment. I often find mistakes being a good thing. You, you know, I do a mistake or, or, you know, they fails. And I try to come up with another solution, maybe to even cover up the mistake or just be, you know, because it forces itself that you have to come with another solution. And very often I think that the, the solution that then comes is better than the first one. So I do find that, that things don't quite go the way you thought are a good thing because then you you have to solve the problem and and that's well that triggers the more creativity and other solutions than maybe the most obvious one sometimes well actually not sometimes most times i feel like the first initial idea i have is a great starting point but it's rarely the ending point like i i find that i you know i basically i have to work through the obvious easy ideas and then sort of have some stumbling blocks figure out what i've done wrong make some failures and then and then progress into something that's better than the original idea sadly of course it takes failure to get to that point but you know there you go yeah i totally agree that the first idea is seldom the best one i also told students before that one has to work through but but you know to to, to get started not the at least for me, I have to get started. I, so I can start with the first idea. But through that process, 
I think of better solutions or, or more fun way to, to do it. And and then I can just put that apart. But but I can't just sit and think through, I, 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 you know, so I have to see it. I have to make it and then see, oh, yeah, no, nah, that wasn't so cool after all. Yeah, it's one of those stupid things that people often say is like, you can't make art sitting on the sofa thinking about it. Like, you just have to get your hands dirty. Yes, you can't sit and wait for the inspiration either. <laughs> you have to just work and then it comes. Well, actually, that's an interesting way. Now, so what kind of, I, I think there are two kinds of artists. There are two, there's artists who wait to be inspired before they go in the studio. And then there are artists who are in the studio and through the act of being there and being surrounded by their stuff or whatever, sort of make themselves inspired. Do you fall into one of those two camps? The last one. I can't wait to be inspired. I have to work. And also, I, I rarely have had time to, to sit around and wait. It's a job. You have to do it. And I get inspired from making, as well as I get inspired from films, uh, lyrics in songs, books, conversations. So there's lots of ways of uh, the ideas to, to come in of the what I want to, to make a piece about. That often comes from outside of the studio. But how to make it? happens in the studio and I, it's no point thinking too much it's more making and see what happens when i make all right well thank you very much thank you thank you for being invited it was fun to talk to you i hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories experiences and advice of our guests as much as i am if you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please be sure to tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.